0: Thank you, Jennifer and Josh. Appreciate that. Please turn your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter five. Ephesians chapter five. And begin looking at verse twenty-two. As you turn there, let me just give a little bit of an update. Maybe you weren't here last week, and some new things have transpired since. And so, let me just give a little update concerning our associate minister of worship position. I mentioned last week that the leadership team of Bethany Community Church following a review committee's uh, recommendation, is recommending Mike Chambers to this church for that position of associate minister of worship. And and the the review committee has has recommended Mike, as I mentioned, and this this past week, uh, Bethany Baptist Church's elders have approved that recommendation. And so the next step is for the leadership team to meet, which we're going to do tomorrow night, and to lay out a, a plan, a kind of a schedule, a timeline, which we'll be announcing to you uh, probably this week via email and a letter, and so it's just a very exciting time for our church, and I hope that you're excited with me as well as we contemplate Mike joining our, our church staff in the ministry that, that he's going to be able to have, Lord willing, and we welcome comments, questions. There'll be some time for you to meet with Mike and ask him questions, and and I'll look forward to, to that as well. You know, there's a reason that they very often don't let me do announcements, and that's because I I always tend to leave things out. And and last week, as I announced Mike, I I had in my notes something to say, and I I didn't say it. And let me just just say that now: Uh, we believe that that Mike is going to do, Lord willing, uh, do an amazing job with our our worship ministry, and he's also going to be helping oversee our, our youth ministry. But what I wanted to say also is just uh, how much I personally appreciate and how much the leadership team appreciates, and I'm sure how much each of you appreciate the work that the lay leaders have done in each of these ministries. Uh, Mike has been overseeing the, the vocal ministry. Uh, Josh Urban has has been giving his time to oversee the, the worship uh, instrumental side of things. Uh, Josh Germs, a lay leader who's overseeing our, our youth ministry. And So I, I want to just make sure that, that we publicly appreciate the, those men and, and all the, the people who are involved in making these ministries run. And what we're hoping is that bringing Mike on, on board will allow these lay leaders to, to do that ministry even more to, to their ability and to the glory of God. And so we're, we're excited about what the Lord may have in store there. And again, please feel free to ask me any questions, emails, leadership team, any questions, Mike, any questions in the, in the weeks to come. Well, I hope you're with me now in Ephesians chapter 5. Our church has been going through the book of Ephesians for quite some time now, uh, since, we, since we launched. And over the summer, we came to Ephesians chapter 5, and we were spending our time talking about faithful families, how different people in the family relationship are to conduct themselves for God's glory. The book of Ephesians is about the, the community and the conduct of the church the church we saw in the first 3 chapters of the book of Ephesians is called to be a part of this community the last 3 chapters are about how individuals within that community now conduct themselves as a community and we've come to here to Ephesians 5 and we see the relationships in the beginning of chapter 6 we see relationships within the family and we've been turning our attention the last few weeks to the marriage relationship and the role of a husband and a wife and we looked first at the role of a husband and now Last week, this week, and next week, we'll be looking at the role of a wife. And so, if you would, stand with me as we read Ephesians chapter 5, a few verses from Ephesians chapter 5 dealing with the the role of a wife. Paul says this, verse 22, "'Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior.' her husband. You may be seated. Let's pray and continue to ask God's blessing on our, our time together this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this church. We thank you for the picture that you've given your saints of, of what the, the church's relationship to you should be. And Father, we confess that we fail in many ways to adequately represent what your desire for your church to look like is. And, and Father, we pray for your continued grace. We pray for your, your grace in the marriage relationships in, in this church. We pray that you would cause your, your Holy Spirit to, to dwell within us and that we would treat one another the way that you desire us to, to treat one another. I pray for just a wisdom for me as, as I communicate this morning as we talk about some some things that, that could be difficult. I, I pray that you would help me to just be very gracious and be in tune with your word. And we pray this in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, former President Jimmy Carter wrote an article. And this article was published in The Guardian, which is a UK paper. Uh, Jimmy Carter, of course, was President of the United States from 1977 to 1981. And he was also very well known as being a a Southern Baptist. And in the year 2000, he disassociated himself very publicly from the Southern Baptist Convention. And his reasoning for for doing so was, was manyfold. One of the things that he points to when he talks about separating himself from the Southern Baptist Convention is the way in which in the year 2000, the Southern Baptist Convention took a very strong position, a strong statement on the distinct roles between a a husband and a wife, in the church, and in a marriage relationship. The Southern Baptist Convention espoused a view that's known as complementarianism. And complementarianism means this. It means that a person who holds to a complementarian view would say that men and women are equal in the sight of God. Neither is superior to the other. And yet, even though we're equal in the eyes of God, God has created a man and a woman to have a distinct role in the church and a distinct role in the marriage relationship. God has given these distinct roles that complement one another. And yes, there's difference in roles, and yes, there's difference in in the authority structure, and yet men and women are are equal. That's the complementarian view. That's what the Southern Baptist Convention espoused. That's what our church would believe, and we believe the Bible teaches, and that's that view that Jimmy Carter found very offensive and, in fact, caused him to disassociate himself from the Southern Baptist Convention. Well, he wrote an article, as I mentioned, in The Guardian that was published two weeks ago, and I think it's very appropriate to to read this article and, and help us as we try to understand how do other people view us. I think this article gives us some very useful insights, helps us see how others describe what we believe. The the article is not very charitably titled. Uh, Jimmy Carter's article is entitled, The Words of God Do Not Justify Cruelty to Women. And kind of a provocative title. Let let me read you a a few few, uh, excerpts from this article. He begins by quoting a a document called the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. He quotes a Bible verse, and, and then he comes to this paragraph. He says, So my decision to sever my ties with the Southern Baptist Convention after six decades was painful and difficult. It was, however, an unavoidable decision when the convention's leaders, quoting a few carefully selected Bible verses and claiming that Eve was created second to Adam and was responsible for original sin, ordained that women must be subservient to their husbands and prohibited them from serving as, as deacons, pastors, or chaplains in the military service. This was in conflict with my belief confirmed in the Holy Scriptures that we are all equal in the eyes of God. This view that women are somehow inferior to men is not restricted to one religion or belief, and he, and he goes on from there. And, and obviously, uh, you know, there, there are several things wrong in that paragraph, right? And, and first of all, uh, Jimmy Carter, President Carter, is, is wrong, in his understanding of how we interpret Scripture, isn't he? What he's implying there is that that this this role relationship that we believe exists in our marriage relationship is like somehow payback for the Garden of Eden, and because Eve ate that fruit, it's payback time, and you've got to be subservient. When when what have we been looking at? We've been looking at Genesis chapter two, and Genesis chapter two occurs before Genesis chapter three. And when Genesis chapter two, we see that there's a, a design in the role relationships in a marriage. And Eve was designed to be a helpmate to Adam. It has nothing to do with inferiority. It has nothing to do with, with payback for the Garden of Eden, what happened there. It is a design by God for a husband and wife to exist in a complementary relationship. So Jimmy Carter is, is wrong in his understanding of how we interpret Scripture. He's also wrong in our application of Scripture, I believe. And, and listen, to, He uses a very... Um, I want to be fair to him, but, but really some inflammatory words that, that don't describe our application of, this, of these principles at all. He says that we believe that, that women are inferior to men, that we're not equal in the eyes of God. He goes on and says that, that women must be subjugated to the wishes of men, and, and nothing could be further from a right biblical understanding of the distinction of roles between a man and a woman in a marriage relationship. He's also wrong. He's also wrong in how he groups uh, some very uh, terrible understandings of, of relationships between men and women with this complementary view. He, in a later paragraph, he says this. Uh, he says, This belief that women must be subjugated to the wishes of men excuses slavery, violence, forced prostitution, mutilation, and national laws that omit rape as crime. It also costs many millions of girls and women control over their own bodies and lives and continues to deny them fair access to education, health, employment, and influence within their own communities. Well, I find those words, obviously, very troublesome, very offensive. And charitably, I want to say perhaps Jimmy Carter just doesn't understand, uh, understand rightly what we believe that Scripture teaches, and, and perhaps this is just, just born out of, of, of ignorance. And, and, I, and I hope that's, that's simply the case. It's nothing malicious. But I think reading this should help us understand the challenge that's before us. I mean, Jimmy Carter, President Jimmy Carter, is a man who spent six decades in the Southern Baptist Convention. And my assumption, and I could be wrong in this, but my assumption is that in six decades in the Southern Baptist Convention, he ran across people who had a right understanding of the distinction of roles in the marriage relationship and in a church who understood rightly what a man and a woman's responsibilities within the marriage are and the responsibilities, these distinct responsibilities within the church. And yet, if Jimmy Carter, who spent six decades in the Southern Baptist Convention, could, could have such a, a wrong understanding of, of a complementarian view, that shows us the challenge we have in accurately describing our beliefs to others who have not had the benefits that he had, there's really just several reminders that, that I had as I read through this article. First of all, it was a reminder that, you know, our authority has to be God's Word. The authority for our conduct has to be God's Word. Jimmy Carter, in this article, quotes Universal Declaration of Human Rights. He quotes several other sources. He quotes various religions. And we as believers must say, look, our, our, the, our conduct is determined by what God's Word says we're to do. It also is a good reminder that what we believe is is going to be distorted. What we believe is going to be distorted about the the distinction of roles that exist in marriage relationship. And finally, it's a reminder that, that it's important for us as believers to rightly model distinct roles in marriage. You and I, as representatives of Christ, as representatives of people who are being obedient to God's word, must have marriages that rightly reflect the distinct roles. The complementarian view. Remember, as we've been going through Ephesians here in Ephesians chapter 5 and talking about marriage, we've first of all said what's our what's our goal? What's our goal in the marriage relationship? We saw that the, the goal of marriage is what? What's the goal of marriage? It's oneness, right? And we also saw, as we talked about the distinction of roles in a marriage relationship, we saw that the husband and the wife each have differing responsibilities for how they pursue oneness in that marriage relationship. We first of all saw that the husband has responsibility to pursue oneness through what? Sacrificial love. I'm pretending like I heard people say that. Through sacrificial love, that's right. The husband takes upon himself to to be the the servant in the relationship and and to serve his wife and to put her needs above his own, he takes upon himself the same attitude that Christ Jesus has and humbles himself and, and serves his wife. That goal of oneness is pursued by the husband as he sacrifices himself, as he sacrificially loves his wife. That's what we saw in Ephesians 5 and in other passages. And last week, as we begin to look at the, the responsibility of the wife, uh, we, we saw that the, the wife, a godly wife, pursues that goal of oneness in marriage by seeking to honor her husband. And last week and this morning, we're not going to be getting actually into Ephesians five yet. We'll be doing that next week. We're going to see that there's a variety of texts that, that describe this process of a godly wife pursuing oneness in her marriage by seeking to honor her husband. As we began looking at that theme last week, we looked at, at several different texts. We first of all looked at Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, and we saw that a godly wife finds fulfillment, finds fulfillment. In God's plan for her life. In Jeremiah chapter 2, remember, God tells the people that they've turned from Him, who, who is the living water, to cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The person who's going to find true fulfillment in his or her life finds that fulfillment in what God says they should do, not in what they in themselves believe they should do. My dad asked me, last, my mom and dad were visiting from Texas last week. My dad said, well, now why, you know, I appreciate uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, but, but why would you begin the wife's section with that? Doesn't that apply to both the husband and the wife? I said, well, you know, two reasons. Uh, first of all, uh, I believe that women often struggle more with this idea of fulfillment than men do in their role." Secondly, I didn't think about it a couple weeks ago. And so uh, this this idea that a a godly wife finds fulfillment in God's plan for her life is is a crucial foundational principle for her as she considers the other things that God calls her to do, but it's also a foundational principle for all believers, isn't it? The second thing that we saw last week is that a godly wife helps her husband in his God-given ministry. A godly wife helps her husband in his his God-given ministry. In fact, you can turn over to Genesis chapter 2. That's where we're going to be in just a moment. But in Genesis chapter 2, remember that again occurs before Genesis chapter 3, in case you're having trouble finding it as well. In Genesis chapter 2, we see that the design, the purpose for the, the wife, the creation of the woman, was to come alongside her husband and together as partners do the ministry God had called them to do. We saw that a, a godly wife helps her husband in, in his God-given ministry, first of all, by simply doing ministry alongside of him. As, as God calls them to do things together, they, they partner together and, and they do those things. We also saw last week that a godly wife is like an extension of her husband sometimes in ministry. There are ministries that a husband cannot do on his own that may be part of God's overall plan for the things that he should be doing. And so the wife kind of as a representative of her husband, as a, as a seal of her husband, goes and, and does those ministries that he cannot do. And so those, it's not that he's doing some ministry over here and she's doing some ministry over here. It's that together they're, they're ministering for the glory of God, fulfilling his purpose for that marriage relationship. And then the, the third thing that we saw as we talked about how a godly wife helps her husband in his God-given ministry, the third thing we saw was, was from 2 uh, uh, Corinthians uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we saw that a, a wife is the glory of her husband. And so a, a godly wife helps her husband in his God-given ministry by seeking his glory. A godly wife is going to have this internal desire to see her husband in a sense glorified. And what I mean, what I mean by glorify. a few years ago, Whitney and I were, were shopping for a minivan, and we decided to do something that, that for us was, was a little uncomfortable. We decided to, to look for a minivan online, and what we found is that people who are trying to sell their minivans online seek to, to glorify them, right? If the minivan has a lot of miles, what's the most prominent thing they say about the minivan? Uh, low price, okay? If it's a very expensive minivan that has uh, very few miles, what do they highlight? Low miles, okay? They take pictures of the minivan, and they, they you know, put it right next to little birds singing and chirping, and you can't see them singing, but you imagine it. And uh, they take this, this these all these great pictures of this, this nice, clean minivan. We looked at one, the minivan we actually ended up purchasing. That They took just tons of pictures of the interior, and we're kind of searching through these pictures, and we think, boy, there's... There's no way that, that uh, all these pictures could be wrong. It looks like this car is, is totally without any defect whatsoever. We go and we drive to Springfield, Missouri, where the, the van was, and we get ready to pick it up, and, and uh, sure enough, as I sit down on the driver's side, there's this huge glob of glue right on the dashboard. I think, how in the world did I miss that? And what they had done is they had taken pictures in such a way that there's always some object blocking that spot on the dashboard, okay? What are they trying to do? They're trying to make that minivan look as as good as possible. And and wives, I'm not suggesting you be deceptive in your glorification of your husband, but what you're trying to do is you're you're having a heart that says, I want to help my husband along this ministry, and I'm going to do everything I can to to make him look good, to to reflect his good qualities and, and to lift them up as we do ministry together. That's a very hard thing to do. In fact, we talked about last week how this idea of pursuing oneness, a godly wife pursues oneness in marriage by seeking to honor her husband, that's far more extensive than just saying, well, a godly wife submits. A godly wife obeys her husband. Because a a woman can say, well, fine, I'm going to follow his leadership and do what he wants to do, and that's submission. First of all, that's not submission. (laughs) But second of all, this idea of seeking the honor of her husband cuts to the very heart of the issue. That requires a, a radical transformation, a humbling of oneself, a radical transformation of one's heart that says, look, my natural tendency is to exalt myself, but because of God's grace at work in my life, my desire is to see my, my husband lifted up, and, and I want to, to engage in a ministry in such a way that he looks good, that others see him and, and are excited about him, and, and I, I want to pursue that, and that's how a godly wife pursues Oneness in ministry. Well, let's look at the third characteristic now. We'll turn to Genesis chapter two. A godly wife cleaves to her husband. Look again with me at Genesis chapter two. We've been spending some time in. It's kind of context for Ephesians five. Well, let's start. Let's start in, in verse. Let's start in verse um, twenty. It says that the man gave names. He's fulfilling God's job. The, God, the job God gave him. Verse twenty. pretty excited. Verse 23, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam sees Eve and recognizes rightly, she's different from me, but but she's designed for me. She has been designed in such a way that she will come alongside and, and together we can have companionship, relationship, as great as all the other animals were, as Adam names them, he recognizes they're not, there's not a helper fit for me. There's not a companion fit for me. And remember, we talked about this idea of, of helpmate isn't like a, a person that, that does tasks for us, a person that does a little checklist. A helpmate is someone that, that, that spiritually, physically, emotionally comes alongside of us and enables us to do ministry for God's glory together. Adam looks at Eve and recognizes she has been designed to do exactly that with him. This past week, Whitney and I bought some chairs and, and, some, and, a, and a table. And uh, uh, if you know me, you know that I'm not the um, most handy guy in the world, I think it's fair to say. Uh, but Eve and I, as I, as I take uh, the, the boxes and, and open them up and, and see all these pieces together, recognize design. So, well, inherently, these things look like they have been designed to, to fit together, and it's kind of amazing to me to think about these things being mass-produced and, and all the holes kind of lining up with all the, ideally, lining up with all the other holes and all the, the parts kind of fitting together. And, and you set this, this table, and, and, and you have, uh, again, ideally, four legs that the table goes on, and, and, and each of these legs are designed to, to support the, the weight of the table. And you don't say, well, uh, the, the top of the table is more important than the legs, and so we'll just kind of lose a couple of the legs. Each part has been designed to, to fit together. And so as, as we look here at Genesis chapter 2, Adam recognizes that Eve has been designed, Eve has been designed to, to exist together with him in oneness. And now comes this marriage relationship, and and the writer of Genesis does does a great job summing up the theological truth here, And, and wives, pay careful attention to some things here. Verse 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Two components there, right? First of all, as they enter into this marriage relationship, theologically, God says this should take place. There should be a leaving of past relationships. When a person stands up in a, in, a, in a church and says, I do, at that moment, all other relationships between themselves and, and every other person in that room take on a, a, a new flavor, there's a new element to that relationship. No relationship with anyone else stays the same. Wives, whenever you committed to, to be married to your husband, your relationship with your parents, with your best friend, with your sisters, with every other person in your life changed in a very dramatic way and there's a process of leaving those past relationships, and then post-wedding vow, there's a process of being 100% fully committed to this new relationship. They hold fast to one another. And the result is one flesh. That is a deep theological truth. And it is the truth that our culture has rejected. When a person marries another person. There is a whole new relationship, a one flesh relationship created. I want you to, to turn over to Matthew, the book of Matthew. It's the first book in the New Testament. And listen to what Jesus says about this passage and. This is the negative side of cleaving. We're going to look at the positive side in just a second, but let's look at an example of of what's not cleaving. Here in Matthew 19, I think we'll start in verse 3, we see that the Pharisees don't understand this theological principle of of cleaving. They have a, a, a defective, a defunct theology when it comes to one flesh. Verse 3 of, of Matthew 19 says the Pharisees came to him and tested him say, by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Uh, the, the, the background to this passage is this. There were several rabbinical schools that had different philosophies on what constituted a valid divorce. And some rabbinical schools said, look, if, if a wife displeases her husband in any way, you can call it off. You know, uh, dinner doesn't go quite the way the husband thought it should be. The husband can say, you know what, I divorced you and it's over. Another rabbinical school said, you know what, it's even, it's even less than that. If, uh, you know, you're walking down the street and you say, you know what, I'd rather be married to that lady than my wife. You can say, honey, it's over, I'll see you. I'm going to go marry that lady. And that, that was permissible under that school of thought. And a more conservative school of thought said, you know what, there, there's no grounds that are acceptable for, for divorce unless there is impurity, immorality. If your wife is unfaithful to you, and then there is, there is, the divorce could be permitted. And so the, the Pharisees ask Jesus, kind of, what school are you of? And Jesus answers this way. He says, look, your theology is off. You don't understand what God's Word says. Verse 4, he answered, have you not read... That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. He appeals to God's word. And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. Look, don't you understand? Verse 6, they're no longer two, but one flesh. Jesus said, your your theology of marriages is is so whacked out, you don't understand, you're talking about separating something that can't be separated. What God has joined together, therefore let no man separate. You don't understand what takes place when a person makes the vow of marriage. They are one flesh. Pharisees say this, well, verse 7, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Look, Moses allowed divorce Jesus. You must be wrong in your understanding of marriage. And Jesus looks at him and says, it was because of your hardness of heart. It was because of the the hardness of your heart that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. He says, your view of marriage is wrong. And it's a hard heart that causes divorce to exist. And just as the Pharisees didn't value the institution of marriage highly enough, our culture doesn't value the institution of marriage highly enough. And when I say our culture, I'm not talking about North American culture. I'm not talking about the the culture of the United States of America. I'm talking about the culture even of the evangelical church. We have a defective theology concerning the nature of marriage. And here Jesus says divorce, divorce is the very opposite of, of cleaving. Let me just give you a couple observations here regarding divorce from this passage, this Divorce, it's the very opposite of of cleaving together. First of all, divorce always involves sin. Divorce always involves sin. Not always the sin of both parties, but it always involves sin. And I have heard people from solid Bible teaching evangelical churches tell me, look, it's no one's fault here. We both just grew apart. We no longer love one another, and we think God would want us to be happy. Look, understand this. Divorce, divorce is a violation of this one flesh principle. And divorce always involves sin. It always involves sin. Let me also say this, or another observation. It is an exceedingly rare situation. It is a rare situation in which you would not be in sin pursuing a divorce. Jesus says, look, look, it's, it's, it's always wrong. And then they say, well, is it always wrong? He says, look, it's only your hardness of heart that Moses allowed this. And I say, whoever divorces his wife, except for the cause of sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. There is an exception there, and it's this exception of, of sexual immorality. And, and notice he doesn't say that one must divorce over sexual immorality. But what I I take this to mean, this exception to mean is this, there's a, I want to be careful and gentle how I say this, there's a, the theology is one flesh relationship. And at some point, it may be so difficult to be in a one flesh relationship without joining yourself to other immorality that's taking place, that you have to step away, that you would be permitted to step away from that marriage relationship. And, and I think about, he's, he's quoting Deuteronomy, he's, he's quoting the Mosaic Law here, and um, perhaps he has in mind here some, some very uh, examples of just total gross immorality that, that's taken place, and a, and a person cannot allow themselves to be joined any longer to a person that's engaged in some very horrendous sexual behavior, and so uh, they, 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 they step out of that marriage relationship, and in that case, they're, they're not in sin in, in their divorce. And yet, it's an exceedingly rare situation. In fact, look at what the disciples say. They, they say in verse 10, look, it's better not to marry if, if that's the way, if, if such is the case of a man with his wife. And he said, look, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those to whom it's given. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been uh, made, themselves eunuchs, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. It's, it's a rare situation. In which you would not be in sin when initiating divorce proceedings, and and again, uh, contemporary evangelical evangelical churches are very much becoming like more liberal rabbinical schools. I've heard pastors tell people that they're counseling. Look, if there's emotional separation or, or emotional abuse, or uh, you know, if if your husband becomes involved in, in, in pornography, then then divorce would be acceptable, and, and that's not Jesus' teaching here. He's saying it is a rare situation in which divorce would be permissible. Another observation that I think that we as a church should, should glean from this text is that uh, divorce does not make a person a, a second-class citizen in, in God's kingdom. Even the person who who is uh, uh, who has been through a, a difficult divorce should, should feel our, our, our compassion and our love, and, and uh, a person who has initiated a divorce, a person who has initiated a divorce in an ungodly way should be held accountable by the church and should be called to repentance by the church. And genuine repentance for unbiblical divorce should be required for, for fellowship in the church. And we should, again, should feel, have a great sense of compassion and love for those who have, who have experienced this. That's the negative. That's how Jesus interprets this passage. Let's look at the positive again, this idea of cleaving. What does it mean to, to cleave? This is the very opposite of divorce. This is done post-marriage value. You stand up in front of the church, there's the there's the bridesmaids, there's the the groomsmen, there's the flowers, there's the cute kids, there's everything, there's the the, the pastor and, and the beautiful dresses, and and you say your wedding vows, and then you go home. And then marriage really starts, right? You see here there's this. Leaving, and then there's this cleaving, this commitment to one another. And wives, let me just offer a couple of suggestions for you as you focus on cleaving to your husband. Uh, first of all, wives, let me encourage you to cleave emotionally to your husband, to pursue emotional closeness with your husband above all other people. Uh, whenever you say those wedding vows before your, your friends and family, uh, commit to yourself to this. You know what? My relationship with, with mom and dad is no longer the same. My relationship with my sister is no longer the same. That that girl that's standing as my maid or, or matron of honor, my relationship with her has changed. And, and here's kind of a, a test for yourself. Let's say you get some, some really good news. Something really exciting happens to you, and who's the person that you, you turn to to share that excitement with you? Do you pick up the phone and call mom? Do you pick up the phone and call sis? Your emotional closeness, the person you should be seeking that emotional closeness with is your husband. You have a bad day, things go terribly with the kids, and and who's the shoulder you cry on? Sometimes the temptation is to seek out friends outside of our spouse. Now, it's totally appropriate. It's totally appropriate to have friends like that, and yet the person that we should pursue, first and foremost, above all others, wives, I say our, I don't know why I say our. The person you should pursue above all others is your husband. It's your husband's. And if there's a friend relationship that is infringing upon your ability to pursue emotional closeness with your husband, you need to reevaluate that friendship because the call of God in your life is to pursue oneness with your husband, to have that emotional intimacy. Another area that Scripture addresses quite frequently when talking about oneness is, is physical intimacy. 1 Corinthians 7, you can just kind of write that down. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, really verses 1 through 5, talk about this one flesh relationship and this principle of intimacy. Uh, there's a book called uh, The Excellent Wife by Martha Peace, and it's, it's a book that I, I think I mentioned this last week in my email update. It's a book that we have out here at our, our, our book table. Another book that's that's also very good is called *The Exemplary Husband* by Stuart Scott. Both both great books. Both books that I've relied a lot upon as, as I've been going through my, my studies here to to prepare each week on the role of a husband, and role of a wife. Uh, I'm going to quote a little Martha Peace here because uh, I don't feel comfortable uh, so with some of these uh, encouragements, so I'm going to allow my friend Martha Peace to give you some applications here on on physical intimacy with with, with your husband and how to pursue that one flesh relationship and. I'll actually uh, be calling upon my, my good friend Martha several other times uh, next week to help uh, us apply some of these, these scriptures here. Here's what she says about this, these, some principles of pursuing physical intimacy with your husband. First of all, she says this, uh, intimacy within marriage is, is holy and good. And so as we think, as you think, wives, about pursuing this, this, this aspect of relationship with your husband, it's important to say, look, this is something that God has called me to, uh, Hebrews says, let the, the marriage bed remain holy and undefiled. Uh, marriage, physical intimacy in a marriage is, is holy and good. Uh, secondly, pleasure in marriage and pleasure in physical intimacy is assured. And is not sinful. Sometimes our culture is so twisted, the physical intimacy in its, in its relationships, that it causes us to, to view the, the whole spectrum of this as, as sinful. And God's word says, no, this is good and it's not sinful. Uh, Thirdly, a wife, as she considers this, Martha Peace says, and I agree, should be other oriented and not self oriented. We talked about that in relationship to husbands as well. Every area of our marriage should be focused upon the benefit of the other and not ourselves. Another principle here is that intimacy should be regular and continuous. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7 says that 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 should take place on a regular basis. Now, obviously, There are are some circumstances where this cannot be the case due to to physical limitations, and I believe, of course, uh, that's that's a different situation. But on balance, intimacy in a marriage should be regular and continuous. What does regular mean? Well, that's that's a conversation you can have later at home, but it means regular and it means continuous. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, it talks about the idea of of, uh, separating from one another for a time, for, for prayer kind of has the same idea of fasting, and so, well, how long is a period you could, you could fast from? Well, perhaps it's, it's kind of the same time period here. Uh, intimacy, finally, uh, should be equal and reciprocal. Both are given the command to participate in this relationship. So, a godly wife cleaves to her husband. A godly wife cleaves to her husband and pursues that emotional, physical intimacy with her spouse. Well, let's look next at a go- this next characteristic of a godly wife. A godly wife, a godly wife works in her home. Please turn with me to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 2. It's, toward the, it's in the New Testament. It's in the, in the midst of a bunch of tea books, and it's the last tea book. godly wife, Paul tells Titus, Works in the home. And let me explain, obviously, what I, what I mean by that, that statement. Let's look at verse 3. Paul is telling Titus the, the different ministry involvements that each person in the church, the different responsibilities each age group in the church has. And he begins talking about older women. He says this, verse 3 older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior not slanderers or slaves to much wine they are to teach what is good and so train the young women here it is the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled pure working at home that phrase uh, working at oh, then kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of god may not be reviled uh, that phrase it's translated working at home it's really a, uh, one Greek word that consists of, of two Greek words that have kind of been joined together. Uh, o- the, word, the two words are oikos, which means house or home or household, and ergon, which means to work. Think of ergonomics and a couple things there. That, that means that, that, first of all, a wife is to be what? She's to be a worker. She's to be industrious. She's to be a, a, hard, a hard worker to, to, to put her, her whole might behind the work that God has called her to do. In our house, um, we have a phrase that I use whenever uh, Whitney begins to, to really go at a task. I say, sweetie, are you in, in Whitney mode? And she says, yes. And I say, I will be over here. And uh, she is. I mean, she can just go into her room, and if there's a, a room that, that, that just, or a situation that's in total disarray, uh, I'll, I'll do this and kind of step back and look and ponder and think about it. And as I'm pondering, Whitney just goes into the situation, whoosh, it's all taken care of, okay? Now, I don't intentionally pretend to be potter. I really, you know, I I may fiddle over here and she's just total, total go at it. Whitney mode, it's just total shoulder to the grindstone there. Industriousness. That's the first aspect of that. A woman should be an industrious in the home. But that's the second part of it, is that the primary responsibility of a woman's ministry that God has called her to in a marriage relationship is, is in the home. It's, Emphasis here is, is work at home. Energy is directed toward the home. Here's the principle that I, that I draw from this is that fulfillment for a wife is, is first, and I'm not saying only, but first and foremost, fulfillment for a wife is found in the home. It's, it's home-based. That's where it all begins and that's where it starts with. Now, here's some thoughts that I, that I have on this, on this principle and I, you know, of course, always welcome dialogue. But one thought I have is is this, this principle doesn't mean that that a wife can't earn money outside the home. I look at Proverbs 31. As I look at Proverbs 31, I see a a woman who's who's selling some garments. She's engaging in purchasing land. She's planting vineyards. She's engaged in commerce. And so, I don't think that this principle means that a woman uh, should not work outside the home. But I do think that this principle affirms the centrality of the home as her first priority, her first responsibility. All of the responsibilities flow from the centrality of the home. And here's, let me just be honest with you, here's something that I've struggled with as I've thought about these these biblical principles and applying them in our culture. We live in a a much different culture than the the, the first century culture or even older culture if you're talking about Proverbs 31 woman. You're talking there about an agrarian culture primarily and it's very easy to to kind of blend the, the, the lines between the agrarian aspects of the, of the of the culture and what they're doing out in the fields and what they're doing at home and and you know making garments. You're making garments at home. And in our culture, you know, we live in a culture where employers make incredible demands upon upon the people in the workplace, be a husband or a wife. So the again, the overall principle is that I believe Scripture's telling us that when it says a, a woman, should, a young woman should be a worker at home, is that fulfillment, listen to this, fulfillment for her flows out of her responsibilities first and foremost at the home. That's her primary responsibility. Now here are some applications of that. Okay, If a young woman was going to come to me and say, I'm wrestling with whether or not to work outside the home or to only work at home, Here's what I would tell her. I'd say, first of all, let me tell you some situations in which you should by no means work outside the home. First of all, if your drive, your heart's motivation to work outside the home is because you want to be the one providing for your family. So we talked about the role of the husband. We said, you know, the husband, really, it's his job to meet the physical needs of the family. If you're being driven by a desire to meet the physical needs of your family long-term, I'd say that's not a healthy reason to desire to work outside the home. Now, again, there are exceptions to this. There may be a situation where a husband becomes incapacitated, uh, out of work, different things, and so for a period of time, the the wife needs to pursue that, and and that's, uh, I believe, of course, acceptable. Also, a woman should not work outside the home if, listen very carefully to this, if she's driven by a love, of material things, or if her husband is driven by a love of material things, and a heart has become con- so consumed with the material things of the world that say, look, we can't have these things unless we're both working these extravagant jobs, long hours, separating our- ourselves from our families, and so I-, I love the things of this world so much that I'm going to work outside the home. That is a wrong heart motivation. There's a great book called uh, Shattering the Two-Income Myth, and it talks about really how little two incomes uh, make, that that second income in a family really really does not do that much to add to the overall accumulation of wealth. There's also a study published by the, uh, uh, the National Center for Policy Analysis, the National Center for Policy Analysis, that talked about the impact of two incomes in a family and, and basically came to this conclusion that under our, our Social Security system, there's, there's a penalty for people that, that work and have two incomes coming into the house. Now, I say that not for you to say, well, uh, then it's not advantageous for me to work outside the home, so I won't. I say that to to tell you this. Understand that pursuing the things of this world is a losing game. And even as you think you're pursuing the things of the world, you're not. In the book of Haggai, there's a great line. There's several great lines, of course, in the book of Haggai, but, but one that's very applicable here. And in the Book of Haggai, the, the people there are 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 pursuing their own homes instead of building the temple of the Lord. And and there's this great line, God says, You're earning wages so you can put them in a in a pouch with holes. And so often, we're just seeking the material things of this world, and we're very surprised to find that it's like we're putting them in a bag with a hole. And so, wives, I would say this to you, and husbands, of course, this applies to you as well. If you are pursuing financial employment because you desire the things of the world, it's a losing game. And we have bought into the myth of America that we need two cars, we need the nice house, we've got to have internet, we need to be able to eat out, and it is a lie. And our families are being destroyed as we pursue temporary things. And so I I beg of you, I plead of you, do not pursue the things of this world, men and women. It is a losing game. I'd also say that a a wife should not pursue employment just because she says, you know what, I'm I'm not fulfilled. These duties that God has called me to just are boring or or lack, lack fulfillment. That's a wrong reason to pursue outside employment as well. Also, if she says, you know what, I won't be able to meet the needs of both my outside employment and my home, uh, and so I'm gonna forsake these responsibilities and pursue those, I'd say, you know what, not appropriate. Not appropriate. But if a woman says, look, uh, I fulfilled, I find my ultimate fulfillment is here and doing the things that God has called me to do, and, and this opportunity has opened itself up. Do you, do you think I have the freedom to pursue? I said, Well, if all these other things are, are true, then then yeah, yeah. Is it an extension of your home responsibilities, or is it in conflict with those? Especially at different phases in life, this this is this could be the case. A woman's work outside the home should be done in conjunction with her husband's vision for the family, an extension of her home responsibilities, and. All of us, I would just encourage us to ask ourselves, you know, why why do I have why do I do what I do? You know, husbands ask yourselves, why do I pursue this job that I pursue? Is it to, to stroke my ego? Is it because I'm finding fulfillment in this job instead of my family or the things that God has called me to find fulfillment in? It's a, it's a good question. Wives, you know, do I want to pursue work outside the home to, to finance idols in my life? I don't believe that there's a a clear application we can draw across the board, but I think that all of us need to examine our hearts as we think about what God has called us to do. So wives, my exhortation for you on the basis of 2 Timothy 2, 3 through 5 is is to be a, a worker at home, to be industrious in the lives of your family, and to find the joy of God in ministry there. Well, let's see. I've discussed this morning divorce, intimacy, homemaking, and Southern Baptists. I think that I've done as much damage as I, I can for one day. Let me close. Let's, let's turn to Proverbs 31, and let me close by, by just reading a portion of that and encouraging you, you wives with that. Proverbs 31, verse 10. An excellent wife who can find... With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She pursues, perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hand to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchants. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for the women in this church whom you have gifted so many ways. And Father, we pray that they would find their their joy and fulfillment in you. We pray that those who are single would find their fulfillment in you, that husbands would find their fulfillment of you. And Father, cause us to hate the things of this world and to love you. We know that love the world and love for you cannot coexist. Father, give us a passion for you and you alone. Your Son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen.